So keep your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 1. If you're using one of the red Bibles, which is in the pew, uh, it's on page 192. However, there are two pages 192, so get the one that's closer to the back. I think they start over at zero when they go to the New Testament. When you think about spiritual warfare, what comes to mind? This is the question I want us to think about tonight. Many Christians go through their life, many Christians go through their life with a very secular outlook, uh, with only a cloak or a veneer of faith draped over their worldview. Let me give you an example. I have a friend of mine, very active in his church, was part of the leadership team there. Uh, And yet, none of us knew this, but much of his worth, personal worth, sense of identity was wrapped up in being a success in the eyes of the church. His wife unbeknownst to the rest of us, and this is not this church, by the way, began to feel snubbed by her husband. She was at home, and she began to, f- began to seek her own sense of approval and identity and worth outside of God's will for her. The children in that family, wanting to protect the good Christian home, the image, began to seek their identity in other things like sports and grades. Nothing horrible, but still, it was not in what God's will for them would have been. All with a cloak of faith, church attendance. So from the outside, there is everyone looking, a clear picture of a godly family. But from the inside, it was eroding until finally it broke. And she left, and he begged, and she refused, and now they are trying to pick up the fragments. And nobody saw it coming. I don't know if you consider this spiritual warfare, but I do. And the history of the church, of just the modern church, is littered with stories like this. Tragic yet understandable people who love the Lord, who know the Lord, and yet, seek to find their worth and identity in something other than Him. There are other stories, though. Many of these, many in this room. At one time, their life was characterized by self-service, self-glory, self-promotion, self-gratification. 
And they finally came to the realization that this wasn't working. Really didn't satisfy. And really, this life is just exhausting. And then one day, somehow, they came face to face with the reality of Jesus. Someone kindly, patiently, diligently, faithfully shared with them. And it was like a light bulb was turned on. And Jesus invited them into a different way of living. A different way of life. A different way of finding worth. And they have found that the deeper they go into Jesus, the more they find a deep and satisfying peace. And there are many of these stories as well. But sometimes in those stories that start off so well, something happens. Sometimes it's when they're used to Jesus. And then an offense happens in church or maybe by a trusted Christian friend. There's a misunderstanding, a disappointment, a sin. And slowly, subtly, the pull away from intimacy with God begins to happen. Almost imperceptibly. And it leads to another version of that first story that I told. These stories exist because we live in a world where there is a real battle. A real battle. And that battle is for glory. That battle is for preeminence. And that battle is for us. These are our stories, and the world we live in is the theater on which they are played out. Real lives, our lives, are at stake. And in this theater... We are not inanimate objects following a script. We participate. We engage with these forces. It's not this cosmic game of chess where we have no part in it. We interact with these cosmic forces. So tonight, we're going to look at Ephesians 1. And we are going to look at one, what I consider, extremely important way that you and I can engage with these spiritual realities and engaging in spiritual warfare. And that is through praying for one another. So I want you to take just a minute, and hopefully you've got something to write with, because I find that it's easier to pay attention if you write. But um, I want you to, in the next minute or so, and I'm going to keep going, But I want you to think of three Christians, two that are in this room, if you know two that are in this room, and one outside this room. So I want everybody to have either in their mind or on a piece of paper, three Christians that you want to pray for. They can be in your family. They don't have to be in your family. And my goal tonight is to help us to think about prayer through the lens of the Apostle Paul's writings. 
and more than just a how-to of prayer, what I really want to do is I want to establish a vision for why we pray and what we pray. Last week we talked about why Paul prayed. This week we're going to be looking at what he prayed. So let me give you just a little bit of a quick backdrop to this vision for prayer. And it really basically is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. Uh, in summary, God's, God has blessed every Christian, uh, which Paul says those are the people who are quote-unquote in Christ. So every Christian has been blessed with tremendous blessings. Uh, those blessings span from eternity past, where he says that we were chosen before the foundation of the world, and those blessings span into eternity future, where we acquire possession of the inheritance that the Holy Spirit seals us for. Uh, there is no blessing of God which the Christian does not possess. Let me say that again. There is no blessing of God that the Christian does not already possess. That is so important. There is no blessing of God that the Christian does not already possess. So the, so the pursuit is not for more. More than what we already have. Because we already possess it all. It is a miracle, and this is my last point of giving the backdrop, it is a miracle of God's amazing grace that anyone, anyone has been genuinely converted to faith in Christ and expresses that through love for the saints. That's what we saw last week. So if all this is true, and we have every spiritual blessing, we already possess it, why then is there so much spiritual carnage laying out on the battlefield? And I think the answer is, that in the current world that we live in, there is remaining resident within the Christian a cloak of darkness and a hiddenness that still needs to be dealt with. Not with something new, but with something you already possess. Because the resources that we have in Christ, we are blind to. This is the realm of spiritual warfare for the Christian. It's not poltergeist, where people's heads turn on their neck. It's not people foaming at the mouth and writhing in pain. It is the realm for who will your life give glory and express has the preeminence for your heart. Now there's a different though related battle for those who don't yet know Christ, but this message is how we do spiritual warfare for one another. So, for you note takers, Paul tells us there are, and this is our uh, outline, three things that he wants us to know. Three things that he wants us to know. And one thing, which is a prerequisite that we must receive, but I won't get that to that tonight. We'll deal with that next Sunday. So tonight, what we're going to be looking at is the three things that the Apostle Paul 
wants us to know. And this is going to be the outline for how we can pray for one another. The first thing that Paul says he wants us to know, if you look in Ephesians chapter 1, is that you may know, verse 18, what is the hope to which He has called you. The hope of God's calling. You'll see on the screen behind me. This is the first thing Paul says that we are to pray so that the, for the goal that we would know the hope of God's calling. Now in every venture, great or small, a person needs hope. One metaphor that we use for hope is there is a light where? At the end of the tunnel. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. This actually played out literally over the last two days as I was driving 10 high school girls to Ohio for a basketball tournament. On the Pennsylvania Turnpike, you actually go through some tunnels. And they thought it would be fun to see who can hold their breath all the way through. And so, all right, get ready, get ready, get ready. And as soon as we go in, they... <gasps> it was wonderful. It was the only time it was quiet the whole trip. <laughs> but undoubtedly, by about halfway... These are some long tunnels, by the way. There was a lot of dynamite, obviously, used in those. Undoubtedly... Halfway through, you're starting to hear giggling, but then you start realizing we're getting pretty close, and the girls who'd given up are cheering on the ones who are still holding their breath and changing colors. <laughs> you can make it! You can make it! You can make it! They were almost there, and they were starting to, the, they, the girls were closing their eyes because that would help them focus, and the girls would give them a countdown. Of course, they always started way too early. They would say, Five! Four! <laughs> and there was one girl who made it every time. Every venture needs hope. As trivial or as important as that thing is, we need hope. And the first thing the Apostle Paul says is that every Christian needs hope. The hope to know the hope of God's calling. Now, sometimes people, when they think of calling, they think of it in the vocational sense. That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about, I am called to be a missionary, or called to be a pastor, or called to be a mother, or called to be a doctor, or whatever it is. This is a calling that refers to a calling to God for salvation in Christ. And there is a hope to that call that God has placed upon your life. The hope of this calling is not that God is going to work out all the kinks in your life so that you have it nice and smooth. There are preachers who preach that. I don't believe that. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. God is not going to work out all the kinks in this life. And I have seen people abandon true Christianity because they were taught that when you give your life to Christ, He's going to work everything out, but it doesn't work that way. We live in a broken world. The hope of God's calling to salvation in Christ is not a present hope, meaning experience right now. It is a 
future hope. It is a hope for eternity. It's a hope that is wrapped up in Revelation chapter 21, which says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be them as their God. That's our hope. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's our hope. And then in Revelation 22, then the angel showed me a river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. That's our hope. And they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will not need light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. That's our hope. That's our hope. It's a hope of eternity. John saw it in a vision, but Paul knew it as well. When Paul was talking to the Corinthian church about the resurrection and why the resurrection was so important, he said in 1 Corinthians 15.19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Think about that. If the best life now heresy were true, that verse wouldn't make any sense. If we don't have hope for eternity, friends, we should be most pitied because we of all people are willing to give away everything this world offers for Christ. And if it ain't real, then we are the chumps of the century. You know what the next verse says? But Christ is raised. Christ is raised. This hope is a unifying hope. It's not only a future hope, it's a unifying hope. All Christians, regardless of background, ethnicity, length of time in the faith, whether you've been saved a day or 20, 30, 40 years, we have the same hope. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, right in your Bibles. It's just a page to the right. Ephesians 4, 1 to 4. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. There's that word to which you've been called. There it is again. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope. That belongs to your call. We are to maintain the unity of the peace. That was true for Jew and Gentile. That's true for white, black, Asian, Hispanic, age, old, young, whatever would distinguish us by the world's criteria. In Christ, we are to be unified around this hope. 
And my friends, if you and I are going to endure the spiritual warfare that's real in this world, it's coming for you and I as the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking still who he can devour, that means you and me. If we're going to endure the spiritual warfare, we must know that we have a hope that transcends this life. When life gets hard generally, or when you are persecuted for your faith, whether that is at work or somewhere else specifically, remember, there's another life coming. There's another life coming. So the first thing Paul says every Christian needs to know is the hope of God's calling. Will you pray for those three people on that piece of paper? Will you pray specifically that they will know the hope of God's calling on their life? The second thing Paul says every Christian needs to know is the riches of God's inheritance. The riches of God's inheritance. Now it may seem at first glance that Paul is reiterating point number one, right? The future hope, heaven, God's reiterating this. And many times in the New Testament, the writers use this same word, inheritance, to refer to what you and I will obtain in eternity. For instance, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4. to Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's what you have to look forward to, Christian. He also says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. That's what you and I will receive. Speaking to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, Paul Paul says, but Luke records this, and now I commend commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So that's what we as Christians can look forward to. There is an inheritance for us. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, just a little bit later in the book that we're studying, this is a warning. He says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. One of the characteristics of a child of God is that we live lives of repentance. And we have an inheritance awaiting for us. That's true. But in the verse that we're looking at, that's not what the preposition allows for. So we're going to get a little grammatical here. Remember what a preposition does? The preposition connects who the verbs and the nouns are modifying. And the preposition in this sentence in English is in. And do you know what the Greek word is? In. Amazing. It's one of the few times they overlap. Actually, it's spelled differently. But the preposition Paul uses in this sentence, he says that you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Not for the saints. In 
the saints. It designates that the recipients of the glorious inheritance, the riches of His glorious inheritance, are not the saints. It's not us. We don't get this inheritance. The ESV Study Bible says this, the inheritance here is not the Christian's inheritance, but His, meaning God's. This indicates how precious His people are to God. They are, so to speak, what He looks forward to enjoying forever. How often do you think about that? You are God's inheritance. Bien fait, you are God's inheritance. He's looking forward to spending time with you. Tyler, you're God's inheritance. Daniel, you are God's inheritance. Donnie, you are God's inheritance. We are God's inheritance. And look how Paul describes us. He describes you and I as the riches of His glorious inheritance. How often do you wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and say, rich and glorious. That's who I am. No. No, we don't say that. But that's who we are to God. By the imputed righteousness of Christ. Praise God. By the imputed righteousness of Christ. Because of what Christ has done for us, God looks at us as rich and glorious. God's thought, this is just point of application, God's thoughts towards you. Christian. If you're not a Christian today, what I'm about to say doesn't apply to you. But it can apply to you if you become a Christian today. And you can become a Christian. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But if that's not you right now, what I'm about to say is not true of you. Christian, God's thoughts towards you are not and never are contrary. They are neither contrary nor ambivalent. God, it, it is not that God could care less about you, Maddie. God doesn't have that thought towards you because of Christ. And dudes, this is going to be a little bit hard for us to take. But we are His beautiful bride. Even the guys. We are His bride. We are what He longs for. We are who He is making a place and He's coming back to get us. So let's make ourselves ready for when we meet Him face to face. This is why it says in, Jesus says in Luke chapter 15, verse 10, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Let me ask you a question. Who is before the angels of God? God is before the angels of God. God is rejoicing over every sinner that repents. Hallelujah. That's great news. That ought to make you want to repent of those sins in your life. And if you and I are going to endure the spiritual warfare of this life so that we don't become the carnage on the battlefield, we must know how much God delights in us. We must know that God delights in us. He loves us. He wants us. He's not ambivalent towards, ah, He finally made it good. 
Check, get him in. I'll see him in a million years. No, God, he longs for us to come to him. He waits for us. My friends, when the temptation to compromise comes, and it comes, doesn't it? When the temptation to compromise your faith or go quiet on your witness, remember, God is overjoyed in you. And He rejoices in your repentance. Remember that. The third thing Paul believes that every Christian needs to know. Oh, before I move from that, will you pray? Those three people on that list, will you pray that they would know that they are the riches of God's inheritance? That they would know that they are the riches of God's inheritance. The third thing that Paul says that the goal of our prayer is that every Christian would know the supply of God's power. Paul has already shown that we need to know about our future hope and our identity as God's beloved. Those are future experiences, but there's one other thing that Paul says we need to know. And that is the power of God. This is very important. Because there can be a tendency among some Christians to rejoice in our future, but to live impotent lives in the present. Rejoice in the future, and we should, but to live impotent lives in the present. Defeated of their own failings here and now. They wonder, can I actually make a difference for Jesus in this life? Can I overcome my sin in this life? And the answer to that question is yes. Verse 19. Let me read it. That you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. In this one sentence, I mean this is, I hope this makes you smile, Paul literally could not find another Greek word that meant power. He used every word at his disposal in this one sentence. Four different words. His power... That word, the beginning of the verse, his power is dunamis, from which we get dynamite. And it says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his dunamis? Those adjectives are, are like uh, trying to exalt like it's the largest stick of dynamite ever. The word for uh, exceeding me is the word hyperbolon, from which we get hyperbole, right? I could eat a horse. Nobody can eat a horse. You're speaking in hyperbole. You're blowing it up. But he says we are the Hooperbalon Megathon Dunamis. The greatness is Megathon. Don't you love this? 
That's what we have at our disposal. The Hoover Ballon Megathon Dunamis. And that's just the first word. The second word for power is the word that it is in English says according to the working, the inner uh, energia. That's another word for working. The third one is of his great. That word is kratos. That is another word for power. And then the fourth one is of his great might. That's the word iscus. Four words, all to drive home the fact that we have God's power at our disposal. But look at its distribution. It says in verse 19, it is towards us who what? Believe. It's not indiscriminate. The power of God is unlimited in its ability, but it is limited to its distribution only towards believers. God's power is not for those who don't believe. So if you don't believe the Gospel, if you've not submitted your life to Christ, if you've not turned your life over to Him, if you don't believe in Him, there's no wonder that you have no victory over the sin that troubles you so much. Because His power is towards us who believe. So you want victory? And you want forgiveness? Come to Jesus. And you'll get them both. John MacArthur says this about these four words. The first word, dunamis, means inherent power. The second word, energia, means operative power. The third word, kratos, means ultimate power. The fourth word, iscus, means endowed power. And what Paul is saying is there is power, power, everywhere you cut it, and it's yours. That's what we have, believers. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2-4 to says something very similar. And you're not going to recognize this because I just decided I was going to make my own version of the New Testament, or at least of these two verses. So I just translated it myself. This is the Alec Millen authorized version. <laughs> May grace and peace be multiplied to you all in the experiential knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As His divine power having given to us everything towards life and devotion through the experiential knowledge of Him who called us to glory and virtue. Leave that one up there. Leave this up here. I want you to notice two things. The power, the dunamis, has already been given to us to live devoted lives. Lives of devotion. This has already been given to us. But it is through experiential knowledge. This is the Greek word epigenosis. That means to know. It's, in a, it's an exaggerated form of knowing something through experience. It's not only the starting point, but it's also where grace and peace can be multiplied to us. And this is what Paul is trying to get to in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, when he says, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. And we're going to get to that next Sunday. Knowing all of this can make a difference in your spiritual life. You don't need anything more from Jesus. You don't need a thing else to live the life 
of distinction for His glory and for His preeminence in this world. And as for spiritual warfare, the forces of darkness, and they are real, they want to keep you and I blinded, fuzzy about these truths. Because if we are blind or fuzzy about them, what we won't do is appropriate what already belongs to us. What we won't do is go deeper into what we already possess. So I'm going to invite the worship team up for our closing song. As they're coming up, let me just conclude about this. I believe one of the greatest blessings that you can do for another person is to pray for them. But the church of Jesus Christ, at least in our country, is woefully weak in prayer. We are weak in prayer. We don't believe in prayer. We believe in worship. We believe in Bible teaching. But we don't believe that we are to labor in prayer before God for one another. Let us devote ourselves like the Apostle Paul to praying for one another. My commitment to you is to pray through the list of members and attenders of One City Church. Let's pray for one another. Let's pray these three things. If you can't think of anything else, just pull out your notes from today. And I'm just going to say this. Vague prayers receive vague answers. Vague prayers do very little to assist in the spiritual battle of our brothers and sisters as they wage war with those that are seeking, seeking to neutralize our influence. So let's pray specific prayers that we would know our future hope, that we would know God's inheritance of us, and that we would know God's power for us now. Lord, we thank you for this time in your word.